Ukraine's president brings in a new defense minister saying there needs to be new approaches to fighting off the ongoing Russian invasion. It's Monday, September 4th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on this Labor Day, polls show union support is at levels not seen in 50 years, with plenty of support coming from the White House. When union workers bargain for higher pay, it increases pressure on non-union companies to raise pay as well. Also, the Environmental Protection Agency was investigating an area of Louisiana known as Cancer Alley, but that's over now. It was just so shocking that the EPA, out of the blue, shut it all down. It blindsided everyone. And this hour, the new app helping women beachgoers in France put a stop to unwanted attention and harassment. In sports, Red Sox win sunny in the 80s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has fired his top defense minister. NPR's Brian Mann reports Zelensky dismissed Alexei Reznikov after scandals over corruption among military contractors. The man chosen to replace Reznikov is Rustem Umarov. He's an ethnic Tatar Ukrainian, a Muslim member of parliament with deep roots in occupied Crimea. He's played an active international role negotiating over Crimean issues since the Russians took the peninsula nearly a decade ago. This also comes against the backdrop of this summer's counteroffensive, which has been bloody and costly for Ukraine. Zelensky said the defense ministry needs new ideas and a new approach. That's NPR's Brian Mann reporting from Kyiv. Tens of thousands of people remain stranded at the annual Burning Man Festival in the Nevada desert. Heavy rain over the weekend flooded the site, leaving partygoers stuck in foot-deep mud. Lakshmi Sarah from member station KQED reports festival goers are being urged to wait for rescue. But many are opting to make the miles-long trek out of the venue. For many in the San Francisco Bay Area, Labor Day weekend also means Burning Man weekend. But unexpected rain made roads too muddy to drive in and out. San Francisco-based venture capitalist Shiel Munnett says people are getting stuck in the mud attempting to drive out. Right in front of me right now, I can see an RV that's stuck in the road because they tried to go and they couldn't. And behind that, there's a Subaru that tried to go. The woman accelerated and... The engine melted. He said people have also come up with creative ways of layering socks and plastic bags to walk around the muddy festival grounds. For NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Sarah. Four people are back on Earth after spending six months on the International Space Station. Brendan Byrne from member station WMFE reports the mission has splashed down off the coast of Florida. The three astronauts and one cosmonaut finished up their six-month mission in the same capsule that took them to the station back in March, splashing down off the coast of Jacksonville. The SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule's fiery re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere could be seen throughout parts of Florida, drawing an orange trail across the midnight sky. The mission clocked nearly 3,000 orbits and 79 million miles traveled by the crew, made up of two U.S. astronauts, one from the UAE and a Russian cosmonaut. They conducted more than 200 science experiments and performed several spacewalks while aboard. Their replacements launched the station late last month from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. This is NPR News in Washington. 
Severe weather warnings have been issued for parts of central Spain. Residents are being urged to stay indoors and avoid traveling by car as heavy rain and high winds sweep across the region. Forecasters have issued warnings for intense storms in Madrid and the surrounding area. Tens of thousands of people remain without electricity in Taiwan after a powerful typhoon made landfall on the island Sunday. The tropical storm is the first typhoon to make a direct hit on Taiwan in four years. NPR's Emily Fang reports schools and businesses are closed today in 14 cities and counties. Cleanup is underway after Typhoon Haiku hit Taiwan's east coast on Sunday afternoon and then passed over the island. Winds reached nearly 100 miles an hour, and thousands of people had to be evacuated from high-risk areas in the mountains of Taiwan. Authorities say at least 40 people were injured during the storm, including a couple who were hit by a falling tree. Taiwan is normally battered by typhoons starting in late spring, but the island has gone four years now without a typhoon making landfall. That's left reservoirs depleted and cities and companies in the south limiting water use earlier this spring. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. Chinese President Xi Jinping will not take part in this week's Group of 20 summit in India. Relations between the two nations have weakened amid an ongoing border dispute. Escalating tensions resulted in a violent clash between their troops that killed 20 Indian and four Chinese soldiers three years ago. This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Harvard Medical School says a review of its body donation program won't be completed until next month. Harvard assembled a panel of outside experts to examine its anatomical gift program after a longtime morgue manager was charged with stealing and selling body parts. WBWAR's Ali Jarmanning has more on the delay. The three-member panel includes a former medical examiner and two people who lead body donation programs at other universities. They were supposed to complete their work by summer's end. Some people are skeptical that Harvard will be fully transparent about what the panel finds. Laura St. Georgie's mom Gwen donated her body to the school. She hopes the group talks to families like hers. Since we are the people who helped facilitate the donations. In the recent years, I think it would be useful for them to understand what would make us feel comfortable making that choice again. The former morgue manager Cedric Lodge has pleaded not guilty to federal charges. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. The president of the state senate is calling on the federal government to help pay for the cost of providing emergency housing. Senate President Karen Spilka tells WCVBs on the record that the state's right to shelter law is being strained by an influx of migrants. We need help. We need help in funding. We need Congress to do federal immigration reform, and we need the federal government to allow us to have permits to give permits for those folks to actually work. Spilka says she supports the governor's emergency declaration and the use of the National Guard to deal with the issue. The state attorney general this week plans to release the list of questions that'll move closer to being on next year's ballot. The AG's office first needs to decide if they meet certain constitutional requirements. If approved, the petitions will need signatures from nearly 75,000 voters. 
Forty-two ballot questions were proposed this year. One includes implementing ranked-choice voting in certain elections. Another would allow recall elections in the state. It's 708. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. The Portacalis family is headed to Greece from director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast only in theaters September 8th. The Red Sox will be in Florida this afternoon to begin a series with the Tampa Bay Rays. The Red Sox have lost seven of eight games against the Rays this season. The Sox beat the Royals yesterday 7-3 in Kansas City. Sunny today and in the low to mid-80s, clear overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Sunny tomorrow, mid-80s, and a bit more humid. Right now, it's 60 degree, 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. On this Labor Day, organized labor is on the move. Walking picket lines in Hollywood, signing up new members, and in some cases celebrating wins at the bargaining table. Here's AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler addressing fellow union members last week. It's been a long time since this country has seen workers united like this. A long time. Polls show public support for unions is close to its highest level in more than half a century. Organized labor still faces big obstacles, though, and for people who don't belong to a union, their bargaining power depends in large part on the overall health of the job market. So we're going to spend a few minutes this morning talking about the state of labor with two of our correspondents, Andrea Shu, who covers the workplace, and Scott Horsley, who covers the economy. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Good morning. So, Andrea, let's start with you. During the pandemic, a lot of workers became newly interested in forming a union. Well, there has been a lot of organizing activity, but with mixed results. Mm. Last year, you know, workers petitioned for more than 2,500 union elections, and that's the highest level in seven years. It has slowed down a little bit this year, but less than half of last year's elections ended in wins for the unions, and even fewer resulted in collective bargaining agreements, a union contract, which is the whole point. Mm -hmm. And you know, Leila, unionizing efforts at Starbucks first got underway two years ago. And more than 300 stores have unionized since, but not one has a contract. And I think that is one reason we've seen some slowdown in new organizing at Starbucks, because baristas just aren't seeing that there's been a lot gained for all their efforts. And meanwhile, they have seen the lengths that the company has gone to to dissuade people from unionizing. We've seen baristas get fired, stores have been closed. And while this is illegal, the penalties are so minimal, they don't appear to be a deterrent. Yeah, so that's really hard. Sounds like a lot of roadblocks for those trying to form new unions. So what explains the continued enthusiasm? Well, I think public perception of unions has shifted a lot in the last few years. Not only are unions popular again, but a new Gallup poll found a third of people they surveyed believe unions are getting more powerful. And that's a huge jump from just five years ago when only 19 percent thought unions were gaining strength. And you can see what's behind the shift. This summer alone, we saw pilots win big raises. UPS drivers got what the Teamsters calls the most lucrative contract in UPS history. And of course, the Biden administration is happy about this. Workers are gaining not only historic raises, but also big quality of life improvements. Here's Acting Labor Secretary Julie Su. I think that is continuing to inspire, you know, what people have called like a hot labor summer, right? You know, workers standing up. And the more we see that, I think the more we will see the benefits of real worker power. 
hot labor summer. <laughs> yeah. We should point out, though, that now is the perfect time for unions to be putting up big demands because these companies have been enjoying record profits. And how long this lasts is unclear. Okay. On that note, we should bring in Scott here and talk about the economy. How are unions feeling about this current moment in the economy? Yeah, I think unions do feel like, if not now, when? Uh, as Andrea mm. says, they've watched companies rack up big profits. We've also got very low unemployment, which makes it hard for companies to replace striking workers. And for the moment, of course, unions do enjoy strong public support. They also have a friendly administration in the White House right now. Uh, Vice President Harris said last week, unions help the middle class and the economy overall. When union workers bargain for higher pay, it increases pressure on non-union companies to raise pay as well, to stay competitive in the labor market. That said, there are limits to how much help the White House can be. Uh, the administration has taken steps to boost union participation in public works projects, for example, but it has gotten nowhere with unions' biggest priority, which is legislation that would make it easier for private sector workers to organize. Yeah, I mean, we're in an economy where nine out of 10 workers don't belong to a union. What kind of leverage do they have? Yeah, the best thing those workers have going for them is the strong job market. Uh, unemployment did tick up a little bit last month, but it's still very low. Employers added another 187,000 jobs in August. Uh, competition for workers has been pushing up wages, especially for those at the bottom of the income ladder. All of that is good, but it's no match for the power of collective bargaining. You know, a report from the Treasury Department last week said, on average, unionized workers earn 10 to 15 percent more than their non-union counterparts. They also enjoy better benefits and tend to see smaller racial and gender pay gaps. So, Andrea, one of the high-profile job actions this summer is that ongoing strike by actors and writers. How does this movie end? Well, the last Hollywood writer strike in 2007 lasted 100 days, and we're already past that. Yeah. What's complicating things is it's not just about wages. It's about job security and changing times. And we're seeing that in Detroit as well. You know, these are industries going through major shifts to streaming services, their electric vehicles, the adoption of AI. Workers want to say in how these changes are going to be made. And employers, on the other hand, feel like there's a lot of uncertainty and they want to preserve their flexibility. NPR's Andrea Shu and Scott Horsley, thank you both. You're welcome. You're welcome. Torrential rains put a serious damper on the Burning Man Festival this year. Tens of thousands of revelers are stranded in the Nevada desert after heavy rainfall turned the annual week-long arts and countercultural event into a mud fest. Authorities are also confirming one death, which is under investigation. It's Daniel Vandenbark's second Burning Man, and he says unexpected weather is just part of the experience. I was here for the crazy heat, and now I'm here for the crazy rain, wind, and mud. Vandenbark, who's from Los Angeles, compared the wet soil in the Nevada desert to mixing concrete. It starts to get wet, and it just gets sticky. It's, it's a really unique experience. It sticks to your shoes. It sticks to your feet. It's very difficult to get off. You can't ride a bike on it. You can't really drive on it. It just, whatever it touches, it sticks on. The festival grounds were hit by over half an inch of rain on Friday night. Organizers closed access into and out of the temporary site for the remainder of the event, which officially ends today. 29-year-old Mimi Doe from Los Angeles was pitching in by frying up some bacon. Seeing everybody kind of like doing something, I was like, well, I'm not going to be in my tent all day and just like, you know, mope around. So I decided to just like, yeah, make some food. It really encouraged me to like, you know what, like, Let's be a part of this and help everyone out. And even though her first Burning Man didn't exactly turn out as she hoped, Doe is certain that she will be back. I love the people here. I love the community. 
It's the third Burning Man for Denver resident Gordon Graham. He agrees the festival's sense of community sets it apart. I was not alerted of the rain. That was not in the brochure. But helping out your neighbors and being here for everybody, that was in the brochure. We know that. And I think everyone's really able to do that and excited to do that. For 52-year-old Zaki Rubenstein, the whole situation is really a metaphor for life. There are unexpected events, and you have to figure out how to navigate them and roll with it. The first-time attendee said being stuck in the desert will make her grateful for the little things. Well, I'm really, really going to appreciate um, bathrooms, and mine in particular. You know, when you live without them, you realize, oh, modern plumbing, that is a marvel. Yeah, this is why I don't camp. With more rain and thunderstorms drenching the festival area yesterday, organizers have asked attendees to conserve water and food and shelter in place for now. But there is one sliver of good news. A social media account associated with the Burning Man Project's website says the traditional climax of the festival, the burning of a giant man-like structure, will happen tonight. For this next story, we go to Argentina, where our movie critic Bob Mandela spends a lot of time with his relatives. He was recently checking out not the art of cinema, but an art that Bob calls delicious. Everyone you meet in Buenos Aires is a fierce partisan when it comes to football, meaning soccer, cafes, and heladerias, ice cream parlors, which in the summer seem nearly as common as cafes. I'm at Heladeria Cadore in the theater district talking to owner Gabriel Fama, whose uncle started Cadore at this same location back in 1957. Fama is understandably proud of his ice cream, made fresh daily, as his uncle instructed, right in the store. And he's happy to wax eloquent on the richness of the flavor, pistachio, pistachio cardamom, hibiscus, and of course, chocolate. We're talking as one of his employees uses what could almost be a canoe paddle to stir quarts of creamy dark chocolate and thick caramel-like dulce de leche into a vat where spiraling metal blades mix them with air into an almost taffy-like chocolate mousse base. It is small batch, handmade daily, and it's every bit as good as Fama thinks it is. But I'm fixated on something else about his ice cream, the way it sits in a cone. It's a work of art. The folks behind the counter sculpt the ice cream into what looks like a six-inch high inverted cone atop the waffle cone. If this were soft serve or custard, that'd be easy. But this is real ice cream, rich and solid, sometimes with nuts or chocolate chunks or bits of figs. So it's not malleable the same way. He shows me how they do it. It starts the way it does in the U.S. You scoop up a glob of ice cream and plop it atop a cone. But sculpting these towers requires a lot of wrist action. The scoops aren't cupped, so they don't produce globes of ice cream. They're flat like pancake flippers or spatulas. So his employees create the shape of the inverted cone on the spatula. And then they sort of back it onto the waffle cone atop the lower layer. A flick of the wrist at the end, it's like a dance move, separates the spatula and leaves a tower. It's gorgeous. And it's just how they do it in Buenos Aires. Everywhere, not just at Cadore, you don't get round scoops here. Fama, for whom all of this is second nature, thinks I'm making too much of appearances. He says, as with a beautiful woman or a handsome man, you can put on your best clothes, best perfume, but ultimately it comes down to the person. With ice cream, he says, it's the same. You can make it aesthetically pleasing, but then there's a moment when it's just you alone with the ice cream. In that moment, 
The ice cream has to be special. I could certainly vouch for his in Buenos Aires and gaining pounds just by being here. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we look at why the EPA shut down an investigation that could have brought historic change to a toxic hotspot in Louisiana. It's 720. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Ukraine's top counterintelligence official has been fighting Russian hackers for years, including during the ongoing counteroffensive. New doctrines will be written and adopted according to what has happened here in Ukraine. An exclusive inside look at Ukraine's cyber war with Russia on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly sunny on this Labor Day with a high near 84. Tonight, partly cloudy and it falls to a low around 68. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 86. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From USPS with Ground Advantage, the new two- to five-day package shipping service. Ground Advantage details are at USPS.com advantage. The United States Postal Service, delivering for America. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldig. And I'm Daniel Estrin. A music legend gets a fresh look in the documentary Little Richard, I Am Everything, premiering tonight on CNN. NPR TV critic Eric Deggan says the film excels by focusing on the star's roots in and struggle with his connection to queer culture. As a performer and personality, Little Richard rarely held back. Let it all hang out with the beautiful Little Richard from down in Macon, Georgia. Especially when it came to the subject of his accomplishments and appeal. I want you all to know that I am the bronze Liberace. Shut up! But director Lisa Cortez's expansive film asks a poignant question about a pioneering performer often called the architect of rock and roll. It's best phrased here by Juilliard School ethnomusicologist Fredera Hadley. What would it do to the American mythology of rock music to say that its pioneers were black queer people? For 
music fans, the film is a poignant reminder of just how good Little Richard was, especially in the 1950s and 60s. We see him captivate crowds with his percussive piano style and preacher's swagger, sweating through loads of pancake makeup with his pencil-thin mustache and serious pompadour hairstyle. We see his influence on everyone from Prince to the Beatles, from interviews with celebrities like Mick Jagger, Billy Porter, and John Waters. Waters says as a youth, he even stole a record of Little Richard's hit, Lucille. The first songs that you love that your parents hate is the beginning of the soundtrack of your life. And in my case, it was most definitely Lucille. Born Richard Pennyman in Macon, Georgia in 1932, Little Richard was openly gay from a young age, kicked out of his family home by a father who expected him to be more masculine. Performing on the chitlin circuit of black-centered clubs through the South, he worked early shows singing and drag, later learning his performing style and piano playing from other black gay performers at the time, Billy Wright and Esquerita. And when one of his early recording sessions wasn't going well, he went to a nearby bar to blow off steam. He jumped on a piano there and played a song about sex. For the film, keyboardist and singer Corey Henry recreates that moment. The song, with sanitized lyrics of course, became Little Richard's first big hit. The film also delves into periods when he became devoutly religious, denouncing his life as a gay man and his success in rock and roll. He saw those triumphs as encouraging the devil, but his baby boomer fans saw them as a liberation from the strict mores of their parents. Here, one expert describes Little Richard singing gospel on the Muscular Dystrophy Association Telethon in 1983. When I hear his passionate singing at this time, it's hard to tell how much is running towards God versus running away from himself. Little Richard died in 2020 at age 87. The film Little Richard, I Am Everything is a masterpiece and worthy tribute. It traces how the genre's earliest expressions of rock and roll spirit were rooted in both queer culture in general and his specific experiences as a gender-bending gay man. I'm Eric Deggins. Earthquakes, they're kind of part of life on the West Coast. In Ohio, not so much. But that's exactly where there's been a whole lot of shaking going on, at least for a few minutes. The state's experienced several in the past year. IdeaStream Public Media's Abigail Botar reports. It was late Sunday night, about 11 p.m. on August 27th, and Margaret Bushman was finishing a good book when something odd happened. The couch shook and the whole kind of house was shaking, but it lasted about that long and I heard this rumbling sound that at first I thought was my dryer, and then I said, no, my dryer's not that loud in my living room. Bushman lives in Madison, Ohio, along the shores of Lake Erie, northeast of Cleveland. She realized quickly that what she felt was an earthquake, not one that threw her house out of disarray or caused harm, but it was noticeable, clocking in with a magnitude of 3.6. I mean, you can have an earthquake this large pretty much anywhere. Paul Earle is a seismologist with the United States Geological Survey. I mean, this is not a huge earthquake. It does not take a huge fault to generate an earthquake of this size. What Northeast Ohio has is a grouping of faults, faults that are miles below Lake Erie and underground in the bedrock. And earthquakes are not uncommon here. 
Last month, there were 11 quakes in Ohio, five of them in this Lake County region. And the one in late August, although minor by earthquake standards, was the largest by far. Vicki Wyatt lives in Geneva, Ohio, an area also affected. She says the sound of the earthquake gave her a clue that this was bigger than normal. We had that rumbling, like it was getting a little louder. You could hear it and kind of feel it before it hit. Two aftershocks were recorded after the quake. Seismologist Earl says it's common for one earthquake to trigger others. It's more like popcorn going off where you have uh, a kernel, kernel explodes and then a bunch of kernels explode and then it stops for, it calms down for a while and so forth and so on. So it, it's not surprising to see a variation in the number of earthquakes with time. In Ohio, that's meant a lot of low-level tremors, which typically cause little, if any, damage. Joe Busher, the head of the Lake County Emergency Management Agency, says that was the case for this latest quake in Northeast Ohio. That's because of strong building codes and the enforcement of those codes throughout the county that our structures uh, all held up well during that event. Vicki Wyatt agrees. She says nothing was damaged in her home, and she feels prepared for any future Ohio earthquakes that may come. We can be pretty self-sufficient. We grow garden and hunt and fish. We always have stuff and we have a generator. She's just hoping she doesn't have to use it anytime soon, even though she lives in a seismically active region. For NPR News, I'm Abigail Botar in Lake County, Ohio. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBWAR's Morning Edition. A new app is helping women visiting beaches in France deal with unwanted attention. It's 7.29. Use the WBWAR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is replacing the country's defense minister. Alexei Reznikov submitted his resignation a day after Zelensky said he would remove Reznikov, citing the need for new approaches in the fight against Russia. Russian forces invaded Ukraine little more than a year and a half ago. Russian President Vladimir Putin is holding talks today with Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. They're meeting in southern Russia in Sochi along the Black Sea. The Turkish leader hopes to convince Putin to revive the U.N. agreement that allowed safe passage for ships hauling grain exports from Ukraine's ports along the Black Sea. NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul reports on what Moscow is seeking. 
Moscow has been quite clear about what it sees as the problematic implementation of this grain deal. Uh, Russia had high expectations that the deal would provide a big boost to its own agricultural and other exports, which had been curtailed by sanctions. Uh, but Russian officials have complained that even under the deal, sanctions against Russia engaging in certain financial transactions, other restrictions like shipping, insurance, things like that, they've continued. Some people point out that Russian exports are in fact quite a bit higher than they were when the deal kicked in. But that doesn't seem to be uh, good enough for Russia. Turkey had helped to broker that U.N. agreement. This is NPR News from Washington. Guatemala's outgoing president and its president-elect are scheduled to meet today to discuss the transition of power. As Maria Martin reports, the country's incoming leader is raising concerns. Outgoing President Alejandro Chamate says the doors are open to an orderly, transparent, and efficient government transition in Guatemala. But the reformist, President-elect Bernardo Arevalo, said in a television interview Sunday there's a contradiction between the transition protocol and Chamate's failure to condemn his Justice Department's attempts to disqualify his anti-corruption Semilla party. I would hope the president would come out strongly against these spurious legal actions, said Arevalo. The head of the Organization of American States, Luis Almagro, is also scheduled to be part of the transition process. For NPR News, I'm Maria Martin. Torrential rains and mud have stranded thousands of people attending what's known as the Burning Man Festival in northern Nevada's Black Rock Desert. At least one death is reported there. Hot, dry conditions combined with gusty winds are prompting the National Weather Service to issue red flag warnings today in sections of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, and New Mexico. Conditions are favorable for wildfires. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Union and political leaders will gather at the Park Plaza Hotel in Boston this morning for the annual Labor Day breakfast. After the breakfast, there will be a march to downtown crossing for a rally to support striking actors, writers, and other entertainment industry workers. Darlene Lombos is the executive secretary treasurer of the Greater Boston Labor Council. She says SAG-AFTRA members need help. There have been actions all over through New England, and it's been building momentum, and it's incredible the amount of support that they're getting from all of our other unions here. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey will attend this morning's breakfast along with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. A Roman bronze bust owned by the Worcester Art Museum is now in the possession of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Officials in New York say they found evidence that the statue was stolen. They say the bronze was looted from Turkey and trafficked through Manhattan. It was bought by the Worcester Art Museum in the 1960s. Museum officials say the art will be sent back to Turkey. Because of the holiday today, the T is running buses and subways on a Sunday schedule. The commuter rail and most ferry routes are on a weekend schedule. There's no service on the Winthrop and Lynn ferries. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Release Wellbeing Center in Boston and Westboro. Experience their massages, facials, cold plunge tubs, steam rooms, and more during their membership drive September 8th to 10th. 
The Red Sox beat the Royals 7-3 yesterday in Kansas City. The Sox took two out of three from the Royals over the weekend. They'll visit the Tampa Bay Rays this afternoon. The Sox are holding on to slim playoff hopes. They remain five and a half games out of a wildcard spot with 25 games left to play. Mostly clear skies and highs in the low 80s today. Some more clouds move in tonight and it dips into the 60s. Tomorrow a little warmer with a high in the mid-80s under mostly sunny skies. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. Since taking office, President Biden has pledged to deliver justice to communities who believe they are taking the brunt of environmental pollution. Many in Louisiana who live in a region known as Cancer Alley had placed their hopes in that promise. But the abrupt closure of a high-profile investigation into one of the country's largest toxic hotspots has advocates questioning whether Biden is living up to his commitment. To talk about this, Hallie Parker from member station WWNO is joining us. Hi, Hallie. Hi, Layla. So before we get into your reporting, let's talk about what and where Cancer Alley is. Certainly. So Cancer Alley is actually a nickname for this big swath of Louisiana. The region stretches from New Orleans through Baton Rouge along the Mississippi River, and it's home to more than 150 industrial plants. And residents there face some of the highest cancer and health risks in the nation due to the air pollution. And studies have actually shown it's worse for Black residents. They're exposed to levels of air pollution up to 21 times higher than their white neighbors. Wow. So what was at the center of this EPA investigation? The investigation was looking at a lot of different things, but at its core, the EPA was investigating whether Louisiana's environmental regulator, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, had allowed companies to build and pollute in a way that had caused disproportionate harm to these Black communities. And notably, you know, it was one of the first times the EPA was linking environmental harm to civil rights violations. And it was also the first time that the EPA had stepped in to look at what residents and environmental advocates in the area had been complaining about for decades. So from what you're describing, this investigation could have had historic consequences But then the EPA's inquiry abruptly closes in June. But you didn't stop looking into it, right, Hallie? You dug into why it Mm -hmm. was shut down. So what caught your attention? Yeah, well, I mean, it was just so shocking that the EPA, out of the blue, shut it all down. It blindsided everyone, you know, even the people involved in this case. So I decided to FOIA the state to see what might turn up. And we ended up getting the last version of an agreement that the EPA and the state had spent months negotiating. And obviously, you know, I'm not a lawyer. So I looked at that agreement with a legal expert, Monique Hardin, and she works for the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. She was actually astonished by how much the agreement could have changed the situation in Louisiana if regulators hadn't walked away. 
it would have required Louisiana's regulators to go beyond just conducting studies and actually make decisions on permits if they reinforced racial disparities, which could include even denying them. And it was the sort of resolution environmental advocates dreamed of. But then it didn't come to fruition. Suddenly, this EPA case is shut down. So how are people living in Cancer Alley feeling now that they know all this? We still don't have a full picture of everything, like why the EPA closed the case, and that's left residents with a lot of questions. Overwhelmingly, there's this feeling of disappointment. I recently spoke with Robert Taylor. He was one of the complainants that spurred the investigation in the first place. He lives in Reserve, this small community in the middle of Louisiana's chemical corridor, and leads a group of residents called the Concerned Citizens of St. John. And he told me he was in denial at first. He felt abandoned like a lot of other residents. They just cut tail and ran. I'm still fabulous about that. But Taylor and others I've spoken to have made clear that they're not giving up on their fights. They just don't feel as confident that this new EPA will live up to all of its promises. Hallie Parker is a reporter for member station WWNO in New Orleans. Thanks for this reporting, Hallie. Thank you. Early this morning, four astronauts splashed down off the coast of Florida after six months on the International Space Station. One of them is from the United Arab Emirates. Only a few people from the Middle East have gone to space, and his mission is being hailed as a milestone for the region. NPR's Aya Batraoui joins us now from Dubai. Hi, Aya. Hey, Daniel. Hey, so tell us about this astronaut. So Sultan Al-Niadi, he is an engineer uh, with a PhD who spent 20 years in the military. And at 42, he's also a father of six. So I can only imagine um, what the mother of his kids felt like <laughs> all that time with those kids on her own. Oh, uh, but this is a tribal, tight-knit society, and they really rally around each other and their own. And his mission it's being seen as a historic moment of pride for this country and really for the region. And you can sense the excitement on social media, online, in the local press, um, and the UAE's leadership. I mean, they have really thrown their support behind him, ensuring he gets the publicity and the kind of attention they feel is worthy of this mission. And although he is the second astronaut from the UAE to go to space, it's by far the longest mission by an Arab astronaut, decades after a Saudi prince made history as the first person from this region to go to space. Um, let's listen to a clip from Sultan Niadi just a few days ago before leaving the ISS. It was really amazing, especially for uh, my region. I come from a place where um, the space flights, human space flights, uh, were stopped for more than 30 years. And uh, I felt uh, that I'm responsible, obligated to show what's happening on board the station. I think it's a small uh, boost towards um, uh, spreading the enthusiasm in our region. Yeah, very cool. So he spent six months in space. Uh, what are some of the moments that stood out from his time? Well, look, he's had a really very savvy social media presence. Um, he's been posting all these very cool pictures um, from the ISS, and he's been posting and sharing all his captions in English and in Arabic, making it very accessible to people from this region. He was also up there during Ramadan and shared a photo of the crescent moon, which marks the start of the Muslim Holy Month. So this, I think, really helped people connect with his you know, mission and see themselves in his images. But there's also other highlights, like he took part in something like 200 experiments while he was up there, and he donned that big puffy white astronaut suit and made a spacewalk outside the ISS. So that also marks the first time for an Arab astronaut to do that. But another major highlight was he was visited aboard the ISS in May for a few days by two Saudi astronauts, including the first ever Arab woman uh, astronaut to go to space. 
Yeah, I'm looking at a picture now that he took of Jerusalem, where I am, and it's just ethereal. I've never seen Jerusalem like that. It's beautiful. So, um, Aya, what what is the UAE up to? It's such a small country. What's what is it trying to do in space? So if we take a step back, this part of the world, uh, North Africa, the Middle East, the Near East, for hundreds of years until around the 13th century, they were pioneers in the fields of medicine and science in what's known as the Islamic Golden Age. And that is a point of pride included in local textbooks and children's books. But yeah, this is a very young and small country. It's 50, just around 50 years old with a popu local population of just over a million people. But they've been very strategic about how they deploy their oil and gas wealth, including by building a space program, by partnering with countries that have very advanced space programs like the US, Russia, South Korea, and Japan. They currently have a satellite orbiting Mars and examining its atmosphere, and they plan to send another rover to the moon after the first try failed. But I think the message here is clear. If you can dream it, we're game to try, and the UAE's leaders insist nothing is impossible. All right, that's NPR's Aya Batrawi in Dubai. Thank you, Aya. Thanks, Daniel. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR on this Labor Day holiday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, following several corruption investigations, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he's replacing his defense minister. Low 80s and mostly sunny today, partly overcast and upper 60s tonight. Mid-80s tomorrow and mostly sunny again. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at TheMusicEmporium.com. Gas prices in Massachusetts are holding fairly study, steady on this Labor Day holiday. AAA says regular grade gas averages $3.75 a gallon. That's down two cents in the last week and about 20 cents lower than a year ago. Tracy Noble is a spokesperson for AAA. She says if there are more hurricanes in the southeast, we could see gas prices climb. Weather plays a part of the delivery, of the shipping, and of the cost. As we come into this hurricane season with several named storms on the horizon, it's anybody's guess what we could see in the next coming weeks and months. She adds that the end of the year usually brings a switch to winter-grade fuels at gas stations, which tend to be less expensive. The owners of a popular restaurant in Brewster say this will be their last summer running the business. The operators of Kate's Fried Seafood and Ice Cream say they're selling the business after nearly 40 years. They tell the Cape Cod Times it's time for them to move on, but they plan to sell the restaurant to new owners so it should reopen next summer. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness, with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Leila Faldin. 
Can an app help fight sexual harassment on public beaches? The southern French city of Marseille thinks so. Reporter Rebecca Rossman went to find out more. It's one of those crowded summer days at the Catalan beach in central Marseille. But big crowds can sometimes breed tense situations. Take 28-year-old Axel Grut, who came here to tan with her friend. I just had, like, untied my top, but I wasn't even doing, like, any topless tanning. We're together, so two girls. It took only a matter of seconds before she started being harassed by a group of 14-year-old boys. And they were like, oh, we can see your we can see like fix it fix your top from unwanted advances to unsolicited comments about her body glute says she has experienced various forms of sexual harassment at the beach i mean it's a daily thing i think i mean personally i choose not to react most of the time because it's too dangerous except now there's an app for that it's called Safer Plage, or Safer Beach. After a successful pilot experiment last summer, it's now being used on four beaches across the city. Users anonymously download the app with a smartphone. If a situation occurs, they can then select between three options, says Justine Noel with the nonprofit Oron, which is behind the project. Je suis gênée, je suis harcelée, ou je suis en danger. I'm being bothered, I'm being harassed or I'm in danger. The app then sends out a notification to a trained mediator employed by the app to patrol the beaches and intervene when necessary. And then they click on the notification, she says, using the app's geolocation tool to spot victims. And they can also communicate with them directly using a chat function. The city of Marseille has put more than $125,000 into training 16 mediators who are taught how to intervene in situations ranging from excessive flirtation to domestic violence. Elias Bellosini manages the team of mediators. He says, for example, they recently dealt with a man who was catcalling a woman while she was sunbathing. First, we talked to the victim, he says, and then moved on to the perpetrator about the inappropriateness of his advances. In fact, catcalling isn't just inappropriate in France. In 2018, harassment in public spaces was ruled illegal. Fines can be more than $4,000. Activists have applauded that law for acting as a deterrent. And Justine Noel believes apps like hers are having a similar effect in stopping would-be harassers. The beach can be a very vulnerable place, she says, especially for women. The goal of the app is to help them defend themselves a bit more easily. But getting people to use the app has been a challenge. Noel says that while more than 900 people downloaded the app in the space of just one month this summer, there have been less than five alerts made in that same period. Back at the beach, I ask Axel Grut if she would ever consider using an app like Safer Plage, to which she says it's complicated. So, I mean, I would feel kind of like a fool just like pressing a button. <laughs> and waiting for someone to show up and be like, oh, he was dressed like this and he looked like that. So it's just too late and I think it's easier to just move on from that. Justine Noel agrees that it can be hard to have that reflex in the moment, but she wants people to know that just moving on doesn't have to be the only solution. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Marseille.
This is NPR News. Coming up at 820 on WBUR's Morning Edition, airports and small cities are struggling amidst a pilot shortage and changing airline policies. We look at what that means for the economies in those areas. It's 750. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky plans to replace his defense minister, saying there needs to be new approaches against the Russian invasion. The leaders of Russia and Turkey are meeting to discuss an agreement that would allow Ukraine to once again move grain through the Black Sea. And police are investigating after one person died at the Burning Man Festival in Nevada. Thousands remain stranded stranded after heavy rains there. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. We'll have great weather for your outdoor Labor Day festivities today. It'll be mostly sunny and in the low 80s. Tonight it falls into the 60s, then tomorrow mid-80s and mostly sunny again. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Daniel Estrin. Now a story about trolls. Not the kind you find on the internet. Not exactly what you would find under a bridge in a fairy tale. You might find these trolls in New Jersey, Seattle, Puerto Rico, or South Korea. Giant trolls by the Danish artist Thomas Dambo. They've been called magical and otherworldly, and they're made out of recycled wood. And now he is building new trolls throughout the Pacific Northwest. Here is NPR's Elizabeth Blair. In the woods at the coastal Maine Botanical Gardens, a small army of, let's call them Geppettos and Hoodies, are building a giant. Pete, you think Scott could cut some? Perched on scaffolding, using jigsaws and screw guns, they're making the giant troll's skin by fastening hundreds of pieces of wood onto a huge interior frame. The troll's feet alone are almost as tall as I am. Artist Thomas Dambo designed five trolls for the gardens more than 300 acres. And then I always look for, like, for, for, for locations that has a little bit of different feelings. Um, so like so one that's close to the water and one that's deep in the woods and one that's like next to uh, the lake and one that's like uh, down and up and in and out so like to try and uh, give people a good experience when they then walk around in the forest and find my art because it's not really only about my art it's also a lot about that experience you get when you walk around in nature and in the forest. Dambo also wants to show people what you can do with trash. He says most of the recycled wood he uses comes from thrown out shipping pallets, which he finds all over the world. You can just get all the pallets you want. You can just go down the the interstate and then look at some big factory and then you can just go and ring that doorbell and then they'll have 500 pallets out the back that you can have. There's so many and they'll just lay there and, and rot or they'll get burned or something. So 
Like so, for me, though they are like a nice medium to work uh, to make art in because I'm not creating any trash. I'm just using other people's trash and then rearranging it a little bit. Rearranging is an understatement. Dambo's trolls are not just huge; they're sculptures designed with so much imagination and whimsy. They've become social media stars. One lounges with his hands behind his head. Another uses a car for an armrest. Dambo gives them names like Sneaky Socks and Leo the Enlightened. I like to think that my trolls are like alive, and now I probably sound a little bit crazy. This fairy tale does have its villains. In 2018, Dambo made a troll for an arts festival in Breckenridge, Colorado. At about 15 feet high, Isaac Hartstone had a gentle smile on his face as he stacked rocks on the side of a hiking trail. Dambo says Isaac was inspired by the region's history of breaking up the ground to mine for gold. And then the story talks about that um, Isaac Hartstone is trying to like build a new little mountain because he's sad the other mountain has been broken down. And so that I made like a little story about this. There was so much excitement around um, just how cool he was and, and, and how well he actually fit into our scenery and our environment. But says Haley Littleton, a spokesperson for the town of Breckenridge, Isaac Hartstone's popularity became a problem. We essentially had thousands of visitors a day um, on some of our busy weekends coming up there. And um, you know, really having an issue with parking and trash. Neighbors complained. In winter, people slipped on the ice going to see the troll. Dambo was following the drama from Denmark. Of course, I don't want people to get hurt, but it, like in Denmark, it's, it's, we have another view on insurance and liability. So in Denmark, like if you hike a mountain in the middle of winter, it's your own fault if it's slippery and you just fall on the ice. That's not how it works in the U.S. Eventually, the town council of Breckenridge voted. Isaac Hartstone had to go. I get a phone call in the middle of the night saying, like, now they're going to take down the sculpture. And then I'm like, OK, well, that's really a shame. And they're like, we can find a new place for it. Or, um, but we have to take it down now because there's an uprising and people are protesting that they're taking down the sculpture. Then I'm like, oh, it's out of my hands. I can't do anything. To avoid an outcry, the town kept the day of Isaac Hartstone's destruction by chainsaw a secret. He used to live on the stone, but the government just didn't want to leave him alone. Now he's it was just such a crazy story, and I didn't know how to cope with it. So the, what we did was that me and two of my friends, we made a reggae song that's called uh, Isaac Hartstone, Killed by the Government. Now he's evicted from home, stripped to the bone. Eventually, a troll task force found a new location for Isaac Hartstone and brought Dambo back to rebuild. He has many, many, many infinite ideas in his head all the time. Artist Mark Rivera first met Dambo in Puerto Rico. Dambo was building a troll in a parking lot across the street from Rivera's home. Now Rivera's part of his crew. He says another one of Dambo's ideas is to involve the community where he makes his art. In 2014, Dambo made Hector the Protector on the island of Culebra. He sat on the water's edge with a rock in his hand. And he's just grabbing a rock and throwing it at whoever wants to, you know, invade the island. But Hector didn't survive Hurricane Maria. Things in Culebra were really, really, really bad. 
after the hurricane. Dambo launched a GoFundMe campaign to return to Culebra and rebuild Hector in the same spot. And he invited the island's community to help out. Local fishermen that helped us out with uh, scavenging wood. There was like a school and you had the children uh, come and they made a necklace for the troll. The new Hector holds a lantern with a solar panel so boats can see the coastline during a storm. It's kind of like a, became like an icon to the island now. And you know, a lot of people love him for that. Back at the coastal Maine Botanical Gardens, Dambo hopes these trolls are attractive enough to get people away from their screens and out of their house. I like to use my sculptures as a mechanism to show people wild nature, because why would people care about protecting nature if they are not connected to it and not reminded that it's there? In Thomas Dambo's fairy tales, giant trolls are the heroes protecting the planet, and humans are the little people. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Leila Faldin. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Police are investigating a death and thousands of people remain stranded after heavy rains mired the Burning Man Festival in Nevada in foot-deep mud. It's Monday, September 4th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is replacing his defense minister, citing the need for new approaches against the Russian invasion. Also, some Democrats in Congress are calling for an investigation into extreme heat in state prisons after inmate deaths in Texas. And this hour, a new study finds significant health benefits for people who receive free fruits and vegetables as part of a prescription produce program. The reductions we saw, for example, in blood sugar, were about half of that of commonly prescribed medications, which is really encouraging. In sports, Red Sox win sunny in the 80s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is preparing to travel to India later this week to take part in the G20 summit. Speaking ahead of the trip, Biden said he was disappointed that Chinese President Xi Jinping has decided to opt out of the annual gathering. I am disappointed, but I'm going to get to see it. The summit has been seen as a venue for a possible meeting between the two leaders amid escalating tensions between Washington and Beijing over trade and geopolitical issues. Biden will also travel to Vietnam as the White House seeks to strengthen U.S. relations in Asia. 
Damage assessments are continuing nearly a week after Hurricane Idalia slammed into the northern Gulf Coast of Florida. The storm left a path of destruction across the region after coming ashore as a powerful Category 3 hurricane. Stephanie Colombini with member station WUSF spoke to one business owner north of Tampa who's working to repair the damage. Idalia flooded the building where Catherine Beerant runs her wholesale seafood business with about three feet of water. She and her staff banded together to clear the debris. All the walls have to be gutted. We've got electrical problems, panels that are going to cost $6,000 to replace. Beerant's anxious to finish repairs in time for stone crab season next month. She says it's a big part of her business. It's hard to sleep at night right now when you know you've got this big a job ahead of you. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of money. Small business owners in 25 counties affected by the storm can apply for aid through a state emergency loan program. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Colombini in Tampa. Russia says it repelled an amphibious landing mission by Ukraine on the occupied Crimean Peninsula. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow. Russia's defense ministry says its naval forces destroyed four American-made Willard Marine Sea Force inflatable boats as they were carrying Ukrainian troops in an apparent attempt to land on the west coast of the annexed peninsula. The ministry also said its air defenses shot down Ukrainian drones on approach to Crimea. That following claims Russian forces prevented Ukrainian naval drones from attacking a key bridge linking Crimea to the Russian mainland over the weekend. There was no immediate comment from Ukraine, yet Kiev has made clear liberation of the Peninsula, which was illegally seized by Russia in 2014, remains a major goal amid its current counteroffensive in southern Ukraine. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has fired his defense minister, citing the need for new approaches amid the war with Russia. Alexei Reznikov announced his resignation on social media after nearly two years in the position. During that time, he faced criticism for his handling of the job. This is NPR. A powerful typhoon made landfall in southern Taiwan on Sunday. Officials say dozens of people were injured after the storm ripped across the island, uprooting trees and downing power lines. Cleanup crews are working to restore electricity to tens of thousands of customers who lost power during the storm. Authorities say nearly 4,000 people were evacuated from mountain communities that are at high risk of landslides and flooding. Businesses, schools and airports on the island remain temporarily closed. Four states are strengthening real estate regulations related to flooding. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports flood risk is increasing because of climate change. Climate change means rising seas, more intense hurricanes, and heavier rainstorms. And flooding already causes billions of dollars of damage to homes in the U.S. each year. But when you buy a new house or rent an apartment, it can be hard to know whether you're moving into a flood-prone area. Now, multiple East Coast states are strengthening regulations requiring that home buyers and tenants be informed about past flood damage to a home or apartment, as well as future flood risk. New Jersey and South Carolina have finalized new regulations, with New York and North Carolina expected to do the same in the coming weeks. Notably missing from that list are Virginia, Massachusetts, and Florida, three coastal states that still have virtually no flood disclosure requirements. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi.
Some cities and towns across Massachusetts say they were not notified when the state placed homeless families in hotels and motels in their communities. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, more than 700 families are in unstaffed hotel units without access to caseworkers or translators. The town of Bedford discovered homeless families through a 911 call from a hotel room. Only to find out at that point the room had been rented to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Heidi Porter is the town's director of Health and Human Services. The state had placed 17 homeless families at this hotel. The number has since grown to 38. Porter says the town and the community are trying to assist the families. It would have been helpful to have a heads up. The Healy administration says given the fast-moving nature of the emergency, sometimes notice cannot be given in advance. In the coming days, National Guard members will help with the unstaffed hotel shelters. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. State Senate President Karen Spilka is confident the Senate and the House can reach an agreement on a tax relief package by the end of the year. She tells WCVBs on the record that coming up with a way to help taxpayers is a priority for her. The relief under the tax plan is earned income tax credit, rental assistance, child care, the estate tax, and other things that that we are picking up and working on. Spilka says the new state budget is already helping taxpayers with early education and care for providers and families. She also points to the new policy providing free community college for those over 25. The Franklin Park Zoo is mourning the death of one of its lions. Zoo officials say Kamaya was euthanized on Saturday. They say he was dealing with health issues after a case of severe pneumonia earlier this year. Kamaya was 14 years old. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Red Sox will open a series against the Tampa Bay Rays this afternoon in St. Petersburg. The Sox beat the Royals yesterday 7-3 in Kansas City. It was the 120th career win for starting pitcher Chris Sale and his first since May. Sunny today and in the low to mid-80s. Clear overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Sunny tomorrow, mid-80s and a bit more humid. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include 20th Century Studios, presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller, rated PG-13, only in theaters September 15th. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. And I'm Leila Fadila in Washington, D.C. Coming up, summer love sizzled in music, movies, and television this year. We'll look back this Labor Day before summer slips away. But first, we turn to Ukraine, where the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has sacked the country's defense minister. The move comes after corruption scandals involving military contractors. It also comes near the end of a grinding and costly summer counteroffensive that so far has failed to bring major victories against Russia. NPR's Brian Mann is following developments in Kyiv and joins us now. Hi, Brian. Hey, good morning. Good morning. So this is being called the biggest shakeup in Kyiv since the Russia invasion. Why this shakeup now? You know, Leila, in making this announcement, Zelensky wasn't specific about the timing, but he said change is needed. Alexei Reznikov 
He says there the current defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, served during the first 550 days of this war. Then Zelensky says, I believe the ministry needs new approaches and other forms of interaction with the military and society at large. So clearly acknowledging some of that public dissatisfaction. So new approaches. Let's talk about these corruption scandals. What were they? There have been two big scandals here. Journalists and government investigators found numerous cases where military contractors were inflating the prices of food procured for the military, often charging two to three times the market price for basics like eggs and cabbages. And there's been evidence some defense ministry officials were involved in that scheme. The government's also investigating a large number of cases where men allegedly paid bribes to avoid military service. Zelensky didn't blame Reznikov for those scandals, uh, but he did make this announcement right after talking about the need for Ukraine to keep cleaning up corruption uh, and implementing better policies to root out crooked officials. And who will replace Reznikov? Well, this is interesting. Zelensky tapped a guy named Rustem Umarov. He's a member of parliament. He's also a Muslim Ukrainian and ethnic Tatar with deep roots in Crimea. That's one of the regions occupied by Russia since 2014. Umarov's been involved in international negotiations surrounding the treatment of Tatars and Ukrainians living in occupied territories for years. Some of those talks apparently involved back-channel negotiations with Russians. He also took in part in failed peace talks that happened right after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. I should say this appointment needs approval by Ukraine's parliament, but that's expected to be a formality. Very interesting. It may really signal a new approach here. As we mentioned, this change also comes near the end of the summer's big counteroffensive. Ukraine hoped to score big gains, pushing Russia back out of occupied lands in the east and south. But as we mentioned, progress has been slow. Did that play into this decision? Yeah, you know, everything here does ultimately come back to what's happening on the battlefield. Zelensky's been doing a lot of cheerleading lately, telling Ukrainians their army is gaining ground, promising that these sacrifices will pay off. But there's anxiety over the pace of the war and the huge loss of Ukrainian lives. I spoke late yesterday with Alexander Stupun, a spokesman for the Unified Military Command, uh, where most of the heavy fighting is happening. He said Ukraine is gaining ground, but slowly and at a steep price. This isn't going to be an easy walk for our soldiers, Stupun said. The enemy's defensive structures are quite dense and a large amount of ammunition is needed to destroy them. So this is what Yumarov's going to face when he takes over, a situation where progress is really slow. And we are close now to the autumn rains that are going to turn this battlefield to mud which means the chances for breakthroughs going forward will be even harder. NPR's Brian Mann with us from Kyiv. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Global grain supplies are at stake in a meeting today between the leaders of Russia and Turkey. Yeah, Ukraine is among the world's top producers, but it faces Russia's invasion and a de facto sea blockade. For about a year, grain and fertilizer shipments were allowed to continue in a deal mediated by Turkey and the United Nations. In July, Russia canceled the deal, and now they're back at the table. NPR's Peter Kenyon joins us from Istanbul to discuss this. Hi, Peter. Hello. So why does Turkey play such an important role in this? 
Well, there's a few reasons. Uh, geographically, Turkey has long seen itself as a regional power, uh, one that follows its own path. Uh, for instance, Turkey never joined the international sanctions against Russia after it invaded Ukraine. Uh, Turkey continues with relatively good ties to Moscow. It's mm. continued trade and other contacts. The Russian tourists are back in droves here. In addition, Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has long sought to portray Turkey as a regional uh, mediator. He took some credit for the agreement reached last year, uh, the one Moscow pulled out of in July. So as things stand, Turkey remains a loyal, if sometimes difficult, NATO ally, supporting a UN plan to ease this crisis while at the same time maintaining ties with Russia. I think the big question is what's possible here? What does it seem like Russia wants and what can Turkey and the West offer? Yes, uh, Moscow has been quite clear about what it sees as the problematic implementation of this grain deal. Uh, Russia had high expectations that the deal would provide a big boost to its own agricultural and other exports, which had been curtailed by sanctions. Uh, but Russian officials have complained that even under the deal, sanctions against Russia engaging in certain financial transactions, other restrictions like shipping, insurance, things like that, they've continued. Some people point out that Russian exports are, in fact, quite a bit higher than they were when the deal kicked in, but that doesn't seem to be uh, good enough for Russia. Hmm. Now, we know this grain is vital for global food supplies. So what happens if it and other commodities don't get moving again? Well, this grain deal has been a big benefit, not just to Ukrainian grain farmers, mm -hmm. but also to countries in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Uh, the United Nations has called it a major success in reducing the spike in prices we saw at the beginning of the war. Uh, so should this deal somehow collapse, should Russia resume a tougher blockade of Ukrainian cargo ships in the Black Sea, experts say the prospect of food shortages in those regions would increase significantly. And then beyond that, some wonder if this grain deal breaks down, what else could that trigger? A push for more sanctions against Moscow? Could Russia double down on its drive to occupy Ukraine or part of it? Uh, in that light, some analysts say a credible move to increase Russian exports beyond where they stand now could be seen as a sensible course of action. Others, of course, warn against appeasing Moscow. So we'll mm. have to see how that plays out. So a lot at stake today and a lot at stake for people who need these food supplies. That's NPR's mm. Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Thank you so much for your reporting. Thanks, Leila. This afternoon on All Things Considered, it's been nearly a month since wildfires destroyed the town of Lahaina on the island of Maui. And even though hundreds of people are still unaccounted for, officials say they're making plans to let some survivors of the blaze back into the burn zone to visit their destroyed homes. To listen, ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. It might be Labor Day, but it's not too late to enjoy some summer love. Summer love sizzled in music, movies, and television in 2023. And in case you missed it, we're here to get you caught up. We start with Stephen Thompson of NPR Music. One of absolutely the songs of the summer is by Eslabon Armado and Peso Pluma called Ella Baila Sola. Bomba, 
que le parece esa morra, la que anda bailando sola. Lyrically, the song is just like two guys see a beautiful woman dancing alone and kind of talk about wanting to meet her. One thing that makes it a summer song is the fleeting nature of it, right? It's, it's a chance encounter. It's like, what if something magical is about to happen? At the movies, there was no greater love story this summer than past lives. It's the story of a young Korean couple with a second chance at love. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. Film critic and writer Carlos Aguilar says Past Lives director Celine Song turns your conceptions of love, identity, and fate on their head. You think about all the what-ifs. If you had stayed, the person you would be, the, the person you become, and sort of the different paths that life has taken you on. What uh, Celine Song is doing in this film is really engaging with a unique vision of what that is. There's no greater love than self-love. That's the theme of the hit summer Netflix series, Survival of the Thickest. Mavis Beaumont breaks up with her cheating boyfriend and starts a new life designing clothing for plus-sized women. I want to dress women and help them love their bodies. Hashtag body positivity. Hashtag work, mama. You the best at this. You better start that rumor. Okay. TV and film critic Trayvelle Anderson says survival of the thickest is a story about loving your own body. You know, it's a fat black woman who loves who she is. The only people who really have an issue with her body are like, it's the outside world. There's a joke at the top of the show in which she's like, you know, he's cheating on me with like a skinnier version of me. And if you're not quite ready to say goodbye to summer love, Stephen Thompson has one last bit of summer music for you. I just thought I would go with a really big, catchy pop song. Uh, it's by Jungkook from uh, the group BTS. The song is called Seven. This song is just a rush of kind of sexy devotion. And in a summer where a lot of the biggest songs weren't necessarily tapping into themes of love and seduction, this song felt very summer. A final sliver of summer love to get you through those chilly nights ahead, courtesy of Morning Edition. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Monday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a recent study found that when doctors prescribe fresh produce to patients with diet-related diseases, the benefits can exceed results from medications. It's 820. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. 
a four-day work week, you say? Well, a new study out of the UK finds that employees love it, and so do their employers. Employers are realizing that if they can rethink where people work, they can also rethink how many days they're on the job. Could a four-day work week work in the United States? How and for whom? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly sunny on this Labor Day with a high near 84. Tonight, partly cloudy and it falls to a low around 68. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 86. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Leila Faldil. If you're flying this Labor Day weekend, you might need to drive further than you're used to to catch your flight. Airline service to smaller cities around the country is dwindling due to a shortage of pilots and changing airline economics. So what does this mean for the surrounding communities? NPR's Adam Bierne traveled to Williamsport, Pennsylvania to find out. A black helicopter takes off into the clear blue skies above Williamsport Regional Airport. Inside, the airport's executive director, Richard Howell, points out the beautiful blue tiled floor. The colored floor is representative of the Susquehanna River going through the community, so it goes through the terminal, so it takes people from the airline ticket counter and TSA. There's like a flow to it. Yes, yes, yes. But there are no passengers flowing through here. Those airline ticket counters stand empty. And at TSA, there are no blue-shirted officers anywhere to be seen. You get behind the scenes here. (laughs) Yeah, it's not often that you get to just walk past TSA like that. Yeah, it's kind of fine. No need for security when there's no flight to catch. There hasn't been any commercial service at Williamsport since American Airlines left in 2021. While that's an extreme example, regional airports around the country are seeing legacy airlines pull out. Since the pandemic, American, Delta and United combined have left 74 of them, according to a study by aviation consulting firm Elevon Pacific. That's due to a shortage of pilots to fly smaller jets and because it's harder to make money with those planes. The 50-seat jet today is just not economic as it was 10 years ago. That's longtime industry analyst William Swellbar. Labor costs going up, fuel costs going up, maintenance costs going up, and it's hard for that airplane at that seat size to be profitable. In a statement to NPR, American doesn't mention that as a factor for leaving regional markets, instead saying it's due to the pilot shortage and that they have to factor in customer demand and what other airports residents have access to. 
But the way airlines are taking off from small cities still frustrates Howell. During COVID, the airlines took $55 billion worth of money from the government for a variety of loans and PPP and all the rest of it. As soon as COVID's gone, they start pulling out markets like mine. I mean, they're literally abandoning rural America. In one corner of the airport, the economic effect of that decision is already being felt. We've lost all our walk-by traffic. Julie Johnston-McManus owns World Travel International, a travel agency based in the terminal. It's very sad to know that we can't help people that need immediate service to leave right from here, or like our older clients, having to pay a driver to get them to other airports because they're no longer able to make those drives. One of her customers is Christina Ertel, who drops by to pay for a tour of the British Isles. But she can't get there from here. Normally, when we traveled, we would probably fly out of Williamsport. At this point, we're flying out of Newark, so we'll have to make plans to stow a car or get transportation to Newark. That's a three-hour drive. Starting a journey this way is becoming increasingly likely, says industry analyst Swellbar. The highway has become and will become the first access point to the air transportation grid going forward. Not every community can support the trend toward larger airframes. And he believes other American cities are likely to suffer the same fate, especially east of the Mississippi. In the west, the distances are greater. The terrain is more difficult. People kind of need to fly. Whereas you look in the east, there's lots of airports that are located in a certain geography. And the highway system is terrific. That's why there will be more Williamsports. Back in Williamsport, the downtown has the feel of a place making a comeback from hard times. But the head of the local Chamber of Commerce, Jason Fink, says the lack of airline service is holding the city back, despite it being home to the world's most famous youth baseball tournament. During the Little League World Series, we bring in site consultants, and they usually introduce companies to various communities, and we all work to try to get them to land their projects here. Last year was the first year that we did it post-COVID, and it was also the first time that we did it without an air service. And the number one deficiency that was cited was inability to easily get here. Out at the airport, Richard Howell is still confident that can change if he can get some help from Congress. He wants Williamsport to get back into a program called Essential Air Service, or EAS. It gives grants to airlines to fly to locations where it's tough to make money. Williamsport dropped out when Congress changed the rules in 2012, saying that airports who didn't use EAS funds the previous year were no longer eligible. Back then, Williamsport didn't need the money. It does now. There's carriers out there that all they do is EAS because it's fully subsidized. They've got no risk. Even if I could just get back in the program for five or six years or something like that until we get past this pilot thing, just you know, get me in the door, Ultimately, we get back to where we were, where there's no subsidy at all. The market sustains itself. And Howell's warning other small cities to make sure they get funded too. Today it's Williamsport. We lost our air service. There's other communities in the area that have lost our air service. The planes keep getting bigger and bigger, so you out there with your 75-seat airplanes and things like that, you're next. And if we don't have some pieces in place that we get our elected officials to put there for us, then you're just going to be next on the list. 
out on the airfield, a lonely green tractor mows the grass. But then, a plane can be spotted heading for the runway. It's a small blue and white private aircraft, the kind you might use to learn how to fly. That's what this pilot seems to be doing, practicing landing and taking off again. Plenty of time for training when you have the runway all to yourself. Adam Byrne, NPR News in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We look at what the realignment of the big NCAA conferences means for the future of college sports. It's 829. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Turkey's president is in southern Russia today, meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Recep Tayyip Erdogan is trying to convince Putin to rejoin the U.N. agreement that allows safe passage for ships hauling grain from Ukraine's ports along the Black Sea. Moscow withdrew from that deal in July. The BBC's Paul Moss says ahead of that meeting, Russian airstrikes have been targeting Ukraine's ports on the Danube River. This is what economic warfare looks like. Ukraine hasn't been able to export much through the Black Sea since Russia pulled out of a deal which had guaranteed cargo ships safe passage. The River Danube was an obvious alternative route, so Russian drones hit the Danube port of Reni on Sunday morning and have now hammered nearby Ismail, damaging warehouses and other infrastructure. Earlier today, Ukraine's defense minister resigned a day after the country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said he would replace Alexei Reznikov. Zelensky says new military approaches are needed in Ukraine's fight against Russia's invasion, which is now more than a year and a half old. Heavy rains and mud have stranded thousands of people attending this year's Burning Man Festival in the Black Rock Desert of northern Nevada. Some people have been doing this for 20 years, and uh, we've never seen anything like this. That's David Date, who's been attending the festival for seven years. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Early voting is underway in Boston for the preliminary city, city council elections. Election day is next Tuesday. WBUR's Walter Rothman stopped by a District 5 voting location in Hyde Park this weekend, where candidates were making their pitches to voters. Incumbent Ricardo Arroyo faces three challengers for the seat representing Hyde Park, Roslindale, and parts of Mattapan. Standing outside the polling center, candidate Enrique Pepin said he wants to be a unifier on an often divided council. I want residents to see that I'm here to do the job. I'm here to make sure that they have someone that's reliable inside city council, that they can always fighting for them, but also taking care of just simple stuff. Community activist Jean-Claude Sinan said he'd offer a fresh and independent voice. I'm running against incumbents and as well as people who are politically connected. I am the only one who has no string attached. Former Boston police officer Jose Ruiz is also running for the seat. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The annual Labor Day breakfast and union rally is getting underway in Boston at this hour. The event is hosted by the Greater Boston Labor Council. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu are expected to be there. After the breakfast, there will be a rally in support of striking Hollywood writers and actors. A second person is dead as a result of a drive-by shooting in Lynn. The Essex District Attorney's Office says the shooting happened Saturday night at a college going-away party. Five other people were hurt. No arrests have been made. Because of the Labor Day holiday, the T is running buses and subways on a Sunday schedule. The commuter rail will be on a weekend schedule today. There will be no service on the Lynn or Winthrop ferries. For drivers, parking meters are free in Boston today. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chevalier Theatre. Comedian Eddie Izzard performs the remix the first 35 years, live at the Chevalier Sunday, September 17th. ChevalierTheatre.com. The Red Sox topped the Royals 7-3 yesterday in Kansas City. Boston outfielder Matasaka Yoshida hit a home run and drove in three runs in the win. The Sox head to Florida this afternoon to play the Tampa Bay Rays. Mostly clear skies and highs in the low 80s today. Some more clouds move in tonight and it dips into the 60s. Tomorrow, a little warmer with a high in the mid-80s under mostly sunny skies. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Some Democrats in Congress are calling for an investigation of state prisons without air conditioning. It's a problem in most states, but Texas is especially bad. It has air conditioning in less than a third of its facilities. And researchers say a spike in prison death rates there is likely heat-related. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flev reports. Texas U.S. Congressman Greg Kassar doesn't mince words about Texas prisons lacking air conditioning. Being in a 115-degree prison is the definition of cruel and unusual punishment. He's one of 14 Democrats on the House Oversight Committee petitioning to investigate states like Texas. The letter they penned pointed to Texas's repeated failures to expand air conditioning in its prisons. Texas prison officials say by next year they'll have 50,000 air-conditioned beds. But that still leaves nearly 100,000 inmates without relief from the sweltering Texas heat. Kassar says the state slow walks progress. They've been dragging their feet on this for years. And now that it's getting so darn hot, I think the public sees just how inhumane this is. Potentially deadly as well, Texas prisons have seen the mortality rate jump. In July, more than 20 extra deaths per 100,000 inmates compared to 2018-2019 were recorded. David Pyrus researches prisons at the University of Colorado Boulder. It seems pretty abundantly clear to me that the mortality rates in 2023 are comparable to what we see in 2021 and 2022 
if not worse, but especially it deviates strongly from what we would think of as business as usual. The state provided no explanation or comment on the spike in deaths and declined to give an interview. In an email, Texas prison officials said the state hasn't seen a death from a heat-related issue in more than a decade. Julie Scar is a research associate at Brown University's School of Public Health. She wrote her Ph.D. dissertation on the topic. Her findings were published last November in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The idea that there have been no heat-related deaths since 2012 is just false. Her study attributed 271 deaths in Texas prisons between 2001 and 2019, likely due to heat, heat-related illnesses, and a lack of air conditioning. That prison death rate is 30 times the national average. The Texas Department of Criminal Justice disputed the study's findings, saying it didn't consider age and listed cause of death. Scar says she used standard statistical models in her peer-reviewed study. Meanwhile, heat in Texas prisons is increasingly unbearable, regularly reaching over 90 to 95 degrees for many hours a day. That's what Joseph Garza experiences at the Dominguez State Jail outside San Antonio. He's serving three years for drug possession. I'm 47. I I have a hard time breathing. Uh, My chest, I wake up numb sometimes. You know, I, I put in for medical about this. Just trying to keep out of people's way, just lay there and sweat. Garza says he's lucky. They have regular access to showers and his bunk in the 60-man dormitory is near the fan. But it's still too hot. I really feel, to be honest, like we're jerky. We're slowly being cooked, you know, and it's, it's frustrating. As the state nears autumn, temperatures remain high across Texas, and advocates say federal intervention may be the only thing to change prison conditions. For NPR News, I'm Paul Flav in San Antonio. Doctors typically prescribe meds, but what about fruits and vegetables? A new study evaluates what happens when healthcare providers prescribe fresh produce to patients with diet-related illness. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. A few years back when Joanne Erickson went to see her doctor for a check-in about her diabetes care, she was told about an approach that was new to her. Her healthcare provider referred her to a produce prescription program, giving her access to free fruits and vegetables. How it works, the program works, is you get a card, and every month they put $50 on the card, and the card is good for fruits and vegetables only, produce only. That may not seem like a lot, but Erickson, who is 60 years old and lives in Sacramento, California, says that 50 bucks each month enabled her to buy her favorite fruits that she normally can't afford. I love berries. So I mostly would buy berries, strawberries, blueberries, cherries, you know, being able to buy healthy food. You feel like a millionaire. I did. After several months, her blood pressure dropped enough that her doctor was able to reduce the dose of her high blood pressure medication. And her hemoglobin A1C, a long-term measure of her blood sugar, dropped too. I was surprised at the amount that my A1C went down. You know, I felt great. You have more energy. You feel lighter. And she says as her outlook on life improved, it felt like her health did too. And she's not alone. Turns out 85% of the participants said that taking part in the program improved their health. And when doctors tracked these changes, those improvements could be quantified. Here's study author Kurt Hager, who did the research at the Friedman School of Nutrition at Tufts University. We were excited to see that the reductions we saw, for example, in blood sugar, 
were roughly about half of that of commonly prescribed medications, which is really encouraging for just a simple change in diet. All told, there were nearly 4,000 participants around the country in cities including Houston, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, Boise, and Tampa. All of them had diet-related conditions such as hypertension, obesity, or diabetes, and had trouble affording healthy food. Dr. Darius Mozafarian of the Friedman School of Nutrition at Tufts, who's a cardiologist, says the results add to the evidence that this strategy can work. Anything that lowers hemoglobin A1C and improves blood pressure control is extremely beneficial. He says the challenge is to maintain these changes over time. Since the produce prescription programs are only temporary, patients need to continue on this path to see if their risk of disease can be reduced. We know that those improvements in blood glucose significantly reduce risk of conditions like eye disease, kidney disease, nerve disease that happen so frequently in diabetes. For Joanne Erickson, the benefits of the prescription produce program have already faded. Not only have her vouchers for free fruits and vegetables come to an end, her SNAP food assistance benefits have also been reduced this year. So she once again struggles to buy healthy food. After I stopped the program, I saw my blood pressure going up. I would say there's a direct correlation. Ultimately, to make a difference, Dr. Mozafarian says these food-as-medicine initiatives need to be part of a long-term strategy. We need to get to a place where once we've established which patients benefit from these and what the right dose is, we need to get to a place where these are persistent benefit. Same way if you have high blood pressure and you get put on a medication, you're not going to go off the medication in six months. You're going to stay on it. The study authors say the evidence from this new research provides a strong rationale for the next step of investment needed to scale up. Alice Naubry, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about a new report from the Treasury Department that finds union membership can mean wages 10 to 15 percent higher than workers in similar non-union shops. Low 80s and mostly sunny today, partly overcast and upper 60s tonight, mid-80s tomorrow and mostly sunny again. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru. Introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. A local farmer has some words of encouragement for people worried about this season's apple crop. Some farmers are still feeling the effects of late spring freezes that destroyed peaches and other stone fruit crops in our region. Marissa Covo is the field manager at Shelburne Farm in Stowe. She says they have plenty of apples to go around. Especially with peach crop not turning out for most of New England at this point, we really appreciate the support of our everyone who comes, our patrons to the farm. And so we do encourage people to come because all of us farmers, we're, we're feeling the loss of our peach crop. And so we would love to have the support for the apples. Covo suggests checking with your local farm before deciding whether to go apple picking this fall. 
A founder and CEO of Boston-based Bioformis is stepping down. Kuldeep Singh Rajput helped create the digital therapeutics company back in 2015. No reason for his departure was given. The Boston Business Journal reports he's leaving just a month after the company laid off 120 people, about one quarter of its workforce. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru. Introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel. And I'm Daniel Estrin. A major athletic conference is expanding. The Atlantic Coast Conference is welcoming schools from the Pacific. Cal and Stanford are joining in in 2024, along with Southern Methodist University in Texas. In just over a year, all but two schools have announced plans to leave the once-mighty Pac-12 conference. At issue are the big piles of money that the conferences rake in from multimedia deals. Daniel Libet is a reporter at Sportico. He joins us now on Skype. Good morning. Good to be with you. So why is the ACC expanding? The ACC is expanding because, as you pointed out, schools are chasing all new kinds of revenue. And, and the money that really is to be had is with these television and multimedia rights deals We saw uh, the dominoes begin to fall when Texas and Oklahoma announced about a year ago their intention or or made good on their intention to leave the Big 12 to go to the SEC. And then USC and UCLA uh, followed suit, saying that they were going to leave the Pac-12 to go to the Big 10. And Oregon and Washington recently joined them. And so now the Pac-12, a 108-year-old athletic conference, is virtually on the brink of extinction as members play the game of following the money and trying to stay in the highest echelon of college football, which is increasingly narrowing to fewer and fewer schools. Wow, the game of money. So what does this realignment say about, you know, the fundamental mission of college sports? Well, I think it's sort of ripped off the patina. I think that's that's probably been there for anybody who's really paid attention the last several decades that, you know, at the end of the day, this is really a commercial enterprise that has increasingly little to do with academics or the fundamental missions of the universities that these schools are ostensibly attached to. But it's really hard even for the most credulous college sports fanatic to think that this is anything other than a professional sports um, with the names of universities attached to it. And now it doesn't seem like anybody is making any bones about it being anything but that. You know, you don't hear the same kinds of noises about amateurism and, uh, and education as you might have heard even 
just a few years ago. We're seeing a, a real financial and economic consolidation of this industry, which uh, is very viable, and the numbers bear that out in terms of popularity and television value. This is a very valuable piece of entertainment, and that's still the case even though the connections to education and to the higher ideals of college athletics uh, seem to be frittering away right before our eyes. So bottom line, do these moves make a better conference for sports fans? It might make at a national level a more compelling group of games for fans. It's going to leave people that care about certain schools, such as Oregon State and Washington State and, and others that are no longer in the party. It's going to leave them on the outside looking in. But the bet from TV networks and, and other streaming companies is that this is going to create the most compelling package going forward. Okay, Daniel Libet, a reporter at Sportico. Thanks so much. Thank you. listening to Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Leila Faldin. It's Labor Day. Let's go home, Daniel. Okay, let's do it. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on clashes between Israeli security forces and Palestinians in the West Bank, plus the strike in South Korea over a teacher's suicide and bullying by parents. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink. Supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org slash sponsorship. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Ukraine's president is changing his defense minister in what he calls an effort to find new approaches to fighting the Russian invasion. Chinese President Xi Jinping will skip the G20 summit in India this week amid frosty diplomatic relations between the two countries. And representatives for the late singer Jimmy Buffett say he died from a rare form of skin cancer. He sought treatment for that cancer here in Boston. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Leslie University. Invest in your passion at leslie.edu. We have some great weather for your Labor Day today. It'll be mostly sunny and in the low 80s. Tonight it falls into the 60s, then tomorrow mid-80s and mostly sunny again. It's 74 degrees in Boston. On this Labor Day, we turn our attention to unions. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get home projects done well. Reviews, pricing, and booking at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. 
From Marketplace, I'm Nova Safo, in for David Brancaccio. A new report from the Treasury Department finds that union membership often means higher wages, 10 to 15 percent higher. Digging deeper into the report, Lane Windham, a labor historian at Georgetown University, points out that underrepresented workers have seen bigger wage gains when covered by labor contracts. Unions help eliminate uh, implicit bias because uh, the contract lays out how much people are going to get paid. Everybody gets paid that, right? And so there's just less room for the kind of implicit bias that you, you might see if a supervisor is setting the wage rates. The Treasury report shows unionized Latinx workers saw wage gains of 35%, Black workers 20%, and women 23%. And disclosure, union employees here at Marketplace are members of SAG-AFTRA, although they're represented under a different contract than SAG members currently on strike. The Federal Reserve releases its Beige Book on Wednesday. It's a snapshot of the economy with anecdotal information from around the country. Recent data is pointing to a soft landing where the Fed manages to slow the economy just enough to cool inflation, but without causing a recession. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer joins me now. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning. So I'm not sure if you're a gambler, but would you bet on a soft landing? What do you think the odds are? I am not a betting woman, but if I were, I'd mm -hmm. say the odds are about 50-50. A B of A Global Research is now forecasting a soft landing. Aditya Bave is their senior U.S. economist. He actually gave me those 50-50 odds, Nova. Uh, and Bave mm -hmm. described the August jobs report last Friday as kind of Goldilocks for the Federal Reserve. You know, wage growth is strong and um, total income growth is outpacing inflation, which means real incomes are growing and people can keep spending. So, you know, job growth begets spending growth, which begets more job growth. And the unemployment rate was up, but Bave says that's because more people joined the workforce and were looking for jobs. And that's a good thing. A good thing. And economic growth also seems to be in the Goldilocks zone, doesn't it? Helping steer us to a soft landing, perhaps. Right. GDP grew at about 2% in the first and second quarters of this year. That is enough to avoid a recession, but not so fast that inflation gets out of hand. Uh, there are still some obstacles, right, to soft landing. For example, I'm thinking of consumer spending, which needs to ease up a bit. True. Otherwise, the economy could overheat. And on the other end of the spectrum, Bave says if bank loans start drying up, consumers and businesses won't have enough money to spend. So, a lot has to go right here, but at the moment, we do appear to be on track for a soft landing. All right. Thank you, Nancy. You're welcome. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at c3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. We head to sunny Italy now, where if you've been to the country recently, you'd know that catching a cab is next to impossible. There's a taxi shortage. Well, there's been one for years, but it's worse this summer, thanks to a deluge of pandemic-weary tourists. Italian drivers unions, though, are resisting a push to increase the number of licenses to help alleviate this problem. The BBC's Leanna Byrne reports about the demand and supply issue that's become intractable. 
Welcome to Milan, the Italian city famous for fashion, architecture and two pretty good soccer teams. But like a lot of Italy's major cities, it's really hard to get a cab. When you arrive in the station, for instance uh, during the evening or during the uh, weekend, you have to wait a lot and sometimes there is no taxis. That's Ariana Sensi, Deputy Major of the Municipality of Milan. She's in charge of mobility and transport in the city and says the problem is there are no new taxi licences. And if you look at the numbers, there are only 4,853 taxis licensed there. And it's the second most populous city in the country. We have been issued for um, the last 20 years no new licences. But in our city, the population increased uh, and the number of tourists uh, was more than double. And there, there are a lot of... Uh, um, events, great events in the city. Uh, the introduction of uh, new licenses is necessary to not to solve completely the problem, but to make a part of a uh, resolution of the problem. Part of the problem is how you get a taxi license in the first place. Generally, people apply for one through a local authority, then it's either granted or not. But in Italy, these applications are extremely rare or are very limited. I think that in Milan, in all the big city in Italy, if we will have more licenses, more taxis, uh, we will have a lot of people that take our taxis. A sort of a new job, more job for everyone. I'm sure about this. The thing is, the other part of this problem is that existing taxi drivers don't want that. Since it's so hard to get a taxi license the official way, taxi drivers have been selling their old licenses to new drivers who want to enter the market, and it can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy one. So if you're a taxi driver who bought a license for a lot of money and suddenly more licenses get pumped into the system, the value of that license could drop. But Ariana Sensi says they could be changing their point of view. I see that there is a new way of thinking. So I can say that Milan is going to push for this changement. And uh, I'm sure because it's a possibility for everyone. A new possibility of job for new drivers. A new space for the, the taxi, traditional taxi drivers. Uh, there is space. Uh, I can say it's now happening. It sounds like she's just going to have to go the extra mile. I'm the BBC's Liana Byrne for Marketplace. Ah, Italia. I'm Novasafo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. If you live in or around Chelsea, join WBUR journalists for a community listening session tomorrow night. We want to know what ideas and issues are on your mind. To find out more, visit WBUR.org slash Chelsea. We'll see you there. Low 80s today under mostly clear skies. Some clouds move in tonight and temperatures drop into the 60s. Mid 80s tomorrow and mostly sunny skies. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.